All right, let's pray together. Lord, you are worthy. Worthy of all of our praise. Worthy of our adoration, our affections, our love. You're worthy of our lives. You're worthy of our service. You are worthy, and so we worship you. Lord, we sang so many truths about you this morning that were moving and uh, touch our hearts and draw us uh, beyond our earthly life and concerns, temptations, distractions, uh, in a sense, into your presence. And uh, Lord, we don't, we don't want to lose that. We want our time of uh, sitting under the teaching of your word to be worship also, because you are worthy of this time. You're worthy of us declaring the truths of Scripture about you and about us and about life. Uh, you're worthy of this time together. You're worthy of our attention. And uh, you're worthy of our, uh, the affections of our hearts. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning as uh, we uh, do come with uh, things on our minds, things that happened this morning or uh, sick people who are not here now that we miss or uh, things that are coming afterwards, things we, we worry about or are concerned about, burdens that we bear that are on our hearts. And we bring them now to you, Lord, and we uh, lay them at your feet and, and um, ask, Lord, for you to take them, bear them. And uh, for this time, Lord, may we see you, may we sit at your feet, may we listen to uh, your word proclaimed, and may we respond in our spirits in obedience and in worship to what you have to say. Lord, we love you and uh, praise you for your word. We pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In your bulletin there, you'll have a note sheet that you can take notes on. I didn't leave you a lot of blanks, but I did leave you a lot of blank spaces that you that you can uh, write in and uh, fill that stuff in. So <clears throat> for the past several weeks here, we've been talking about sexual and moral purity. And it's not always a very comfortable subject to discuss. It's not a very popular subject to discuss in our culture more broadly. Think about this. I, I read this um, just this week. More than half of births to American women younger than 30 are outside of marriage. More than half of births to American women younger than 30 are outside of marriage. Across all ages, a staggering four in ten women are not married when they have children. And that with two-thirds of the children in the U.S. born to mothers under the age of 30, so two-thirds are born to that group, those under the age of 30, it appears that the majority of births across the country are outside of wedlock. That's data compiled by Child Trends, a Washington research group that analyzed government data and then it was reported in the New York Times. So moral purity is not the standard in our culture. It's not the norm in our culture. It is, however, to be the standard and the norm within the church. Look with me at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus 
that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So we're going to focus this morning on the last two verses there, verses 7 and 8 in that passage. And there are some words in there that may not be super clear to us, so we're going to start off by making some definitions. And the first one we're going to start with is the definition of impurity. Impurity. I think the best way maybe to define this word is to use a very great example that Jesus gave us in Matthew 23. So if you can write, just write down that uh, note there, Matthew 23, verse 27. He's speaking to the hypocritical um, Jewish religious leaders of his day. He's talking to them, and this is what he says to them, okay? So he's, he's speaking to them, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. That word uncleanness is the same word, impurity. So that gives me, that gives a picture without having to define in words what exactly is meant. That gives you a very clear picture of what's going on, what's meant by this idea of impurity. We see elsewhere in scripture that uh, impurity has a dishonoring and a degrading effect on the person committing the sin. That's Romans one twenty four talks about that. And at least half a dozen passages in the New Testament that talk about various forms of sin and list those various forms of sin, they tie this word impurity together with sexual immorality and sensuality. Half a dozen times there's a list and those occur together. Okay, so it's closely tied so as a definition, a working definition for our discussion this morning, impurity is a sort of moral rottenness. It's often connected with sexual sin, and it's degrading to the person and displeasing to God. It's a sort of moral rottenness that's often connected with sexual sin in the New Testament. It has a, it's degrading to the person, and it's displeasing to God. So that's what impurity is, all right? So we're really starting off with a bang here. So essentially the opposite, however, of impurity is holiness. And that's the next one we want to look at, holiness. Now, we sang about holiness this morning. Anytime you open up Scripture and read about it, you're going to read about holiness. It comes up in conversation, right? And we've talked about how to define it and what it means at different times. And uh, so I, I want to look back again to a, um, a definition that's kind of the working definition I have in my mind when I think about, about holiness, and it comes from Wayne Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology, which is actually called An Introduction to Theology, and it's about that thick. So we were laughing yesterday about, if that's the introduction, what's the real deal? But it's like 1,100, 1,200, 1,300 pages. Anyway, so his de- definition of holy there is, or holiness there is this. Holiness is to be 
separated from sin and devoted to seeking the honor of God. Separated from sin and then devoted or separated for bringing honor to God. And as we read through the Bible, we find that all kinds of things are considered holy. The holy land, Israel. It's to be set apart from sin, and it's a people for God's own possession. It's the holy land. Holy utensils that were used in the temple and the tabernacle to perform certain uh, forms of worship and stuff like that. These weren't the tongs that you, that you used to flip your burgers, and then you went inside to you know, to make your offering, right? They were, they were unique. They were to be set apart, consecrated for that purpose only, set apart to honor God. The temple, the tabernacle, they're both called holy. They have one purpose, bring honor to God. They're to be separated from sin. So we're getting the idea of what holy is, okay? It's to be separated. The priestly garments, the Sabbath, there are various things that are considered holy, okay? It means to be set apart from something, that is to be set apart from sin, and it's to be set apart for something, which is God's glory. So that's what the idea of holiness is. So you can define that there in in the space that, that you've been provided. So now, having a good definition in mind for what impurity is, remember the whitewashed tomb that looks great on the outside, but it's nastiness inside? Having, having that kind of definition in mind for, for impurity and, and having a good definition in mind for what is holiness, now let's take a look at our calling. Our calling. Because what Paul says here is God has not called us for impurity, that moral rottenness that's degrading and dishonoring to God and that, all that stuff. He's not called us for that. He has called us for holiness. So what's this calling? What do we mean God has called us? What's the, what's the, what's going on here? What's he talking about? Well, so I looked up the word calling or call or called in uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And what do you know? It's there a whole lot. (laughs) And this is what I found. And I won't list all the verses because they are more numerous than uh, you'd be able to write down. But we hear again and again and again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God telling his people, be holy. For I am holy. So he calls them to holiness. Ephesians 1.4 says that before the foundation of the world, he chose us or called us to be holy and blameless. 2 Timothy 1, he called us to a holy calling because of his own purposes. It's called a holy calling. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1, starting those letters, Paul says we have been called to be saints. We've been called to be saints. In Romans 8, very famous verse, Romans 8, 28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his, to his purpose, right? Well, the next two verses go on to spell out what that's like. We've been called to be conformed to the image of his son. So this call has a purpose. We see it again and again in scripture. He calls us to that. He calls us to holiness. So Paul's not going out on a limb here. So again, in, again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see that we have been called by God to be a holy people. Holiness is our calling. So look back at verse 7, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now, I passed right over the first word in the verse there. What's the first word? Look at, look at your Bible there. What's the first word? Three little letters, four, F-O-R, right? Four. What does that tell us? 
What does that word mean? Well, if you looked it up in a dictionary, you'd probably find a couple of pages of definitions because it's such a vague word. But when it's used in a logical progression of an argument, it's giving a reason. He's giving a motivation for what he said before. He's telling us why. He's telling us what the purpose is. He's giving us a reason, a motivation to pursue the sexual purity that he's been calling for in the whole preceding paragraph. This is a motivation. This is a reason to do it. For God has not called us for impurity. He's called us to holiness. And that's to be a motivation for us. He's called us out of that life of impurity and of corruption. And he's called, to, he's called us into and towards holiness. The sphere he called you out of is characterized by impurity. He, he called you out of that lifestyle. He wanted to bring you from it. He wanted to rescue you from that lifestyle. So he takes us from that lifestyle and into purity. He saves you to make you pure. That's great motivation, as we'll see. One of God's purposes in calling us to be his people is that we would be holy. One of his purposes in calling us to be his is that we would be holy. So God's plan and design for us is that we be holy. So what does it mean if we reject that plan? What if we reject that plan? What does rejection mean? Well, let's look at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So if we reject that plan, there are some implications. Now, uh, a lot of your versions will say disregard, reject, um, Basically, not pay attention. There's another, ver- there's another version out there. I can't remember. What's the other one? Someone has something different. It's not disregard or reject. What's another version that you have? Huh? Despise. Okay. Now, the reason they're struggling to define that word, it comes out in different ways. Obviously, it's the same word. But I, I was thinking about this. Well, how-, how do I define this? What exactly does it mean in this case? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized if I give a command, an instruction to my child and the child disregards that command, if I say, go clean your room and the child just goes about his or her merry way, right? Disregards my command. That's the same as if they just said, no, dad, I'm not going to do that. It's the same result. Does the room get clean? No. Was I obeyed? No. Now, there are varying degrees of you know, how obstinate they're going to be in my face, but the end result is the same. And I think that's the case in this passage here as we look at this word here. When you uh, talk to a Christian who is caught in sexual immorality, they wouldn't say, no, I, I reject God's standards and that. I think it's terrible and dumb. I'm not going to, I just don't follow that. They wouldn't say that, right? It's more that they're going to turn a blind eye to it, right? They don't, really don't want to hear it and they're kind of going to skirt around it. But it's the same end result, Right? So I'm going to use the word reject just so we have in our mind that the end result is a disobedience to that command. All right, enough said on definition of word. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't tell us exactly what is being rejected or disregarded. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this or this instruction, that word is just not there. It says whoever disregards. 
and it's left hanging. And the translators, of course, have to translate it into English, and we require an object there, so they throw in this or this instruction or something like that to fill in the sentence. But in the Greek, it's not there. But just think about what's being disregarded. He says, therefore, whoever disregards, it's what came before. It's this whole concept of what came before. It's not just the instruction about impurity. If I'm disregarding God's instruction about purity, sexual purity, I'm actually disregarding sexual purity in the end is what I'm doing. So therefore, whoever rejects God's standard in this area, whoever rejects this, what came before the standard. So if we choose to ignore Paul's teaching here on sexual purity, whose standard are we really rejecting? Man's or God's? Well, similar to our day, the first century was not a time of sexual purity. There was rampant sexual immorality. That was, it was the norm then. There were many religious practices, entire religions built almost exclusively around this idea. It was rampant. It was everywhere. So our day is very, very similar. And a person in, in his time, in Paul's time, who was calling for a biblical standard of sexual purity in the culture of that time would have felt pretty alone. That's a pretty lonely voice. We know from how often the churches themselves are instructed regarding this, that it was a deal uh, problem not just in the culture, but it had made its way into the church. Otherwise, the church wouldn't be receiving this instruction on the issue. So the church has even had problems. It had worked its way into the body of Christ during the New Testament times. And any Christian who was standing up and making these sort of bold claims and instructions like Paul is making here about sexual purity and pursue this. God has called you to holiness, not to impurity, etc. That kind of person would have been considered, um, well, people certainly would have wondered at them, wondered what their motivation was or were they crazy. Well, think about our own time. Think about the realm of sexuality in our own time. When the church preaches about chastity or purity or abstinence before marriage, what kind of responses do we get? Go, just, I dare you, go talk about that on, on a high school campus. Go have a good you know, conversation over lunch over that, uh, about that with someone and, and see what kind of things are come up, right? A huge percentage of the people outside of the church would think that maybe we're crazy, certainly puritanical, right? And uh, we, we're certainly misled on this issue. Eh, it's not important to pursue that. It doesn't really matter, right? Many would even say that maybe we're doing some sort of psychological harm to ourselves by denying this area of our lives. After all, it's a natural human function. It's a part of our biology, et cetera, et cetera, right? So maybe we're actually doing damage to ourselves. I could have heard that before. Puritanical, that's what they would call us. What's even more painful than a degraded society, an impure society, is the degree of degradation and impurity that's within the church during our times. There are people who uh, say they love Jesus, who may even attend church. Maybe they've been baptized. Um, they talk and look just like the rest of us. But when it comes to this area of sexual purity, they don't want anything practically to do with the biblical standard. Just don't want, don't want anything to do with it. And if you don't believe me, let me just give you a quick example. Just think through your list of friends. 
acquaintances, your circle of people that you know. Think through that list and think about the number of couples who lived together before they got married. Couples who call themselves Christians, who lived together before they got married. Lived as man and wife without actually being man and wife. Now, I I personally know quite a few uh, Christian couples who lived together before they got married. And if I were to call them out on this issue, what do you think their response would be? The first thing is they would feel guilt because they would know I was right in calling them out on this. So that's the first thing, they would feel guilt. The second thing, because of that guilt, they would probably respond in defensiveness, right? And they would start saying, well, why? It's, it's really okay uh, if I just understood their situation, that really in their situation it makes sense and it's okay, right? Or maybe I'm just being a little old-fashioned, right? These are, that's kind of that's outdated uh, uh, morality there, Brennan. Or maybe they, you know, they assure me that they're not sleeping together honest, I've heard that one. Either way, the gist of their response would be that I just don't get it. I don't get it. And that's why Paul reminds the Thessalonians that they are not actually rejecting Paul when they reject this instruction. In fact, they're rejecting God himself. When we reject God's instructions... In a very real sense, we are rejecting God himself. That's what Paul just said. So what does that mean? What's the meaning? Well, I, uh, looking back over the course of the Old Testament and uh, looking at this idea of, of rejecting the messenger, not really, no, rejecting actually God himself, I was taken to the book of 1 Samuel. And in, early on in the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel is the judge, he's the prophet of the people. This is way back Old Testament times, before, before they had kings. And they, uh, Samuel was a great prophet, he was a great judge of the people, he was the last of the judges. And when he was getting old, the people looked at him and saw that his, his children were not really following the Lord, they weren't great leaders, and so they went to Samuel and they demanded that he give them a king. Like all the nations around them had, we want a king. We want a king we can see, that we can follow, like these other nations have. And so uh, Samuel, of course, argues with him and said, uh, God is your king. Are you looking for a better king? What's the deal? Is he not good enough for you? Is he not enough? You need something else? And so this is what God says in response. For Samuel 8, 7, God says to Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. It's not you that, that they're fussing with. It's me. And later on, when, when the people are all assembled together and they're going to choose a king, they're just about to make the decision. God tells the people, today you have rejected your God. And it's a similar kind of concept. I want another king, one who's less demanding. One, who's, one who doesn't have this kind of high standard. One who's not going to tell me these painful things about my life. Tell me I'm falling short. So I, I want another God. I want another king. And I like a lot of the stuff about God, but I'm going to change these, these few things, right? I like the love stuff. I like the grace stuff. I like, I like his goodness to me and all that kind of stuff. But the fact that he called me to be holy, I really don't like that. So I'm going to make a God in my own image. 
He looks a lot like the regular God, the real God, but he's different. I'm going to cut some things out. And that's the idea of what's going on here. In our passage, the, the Thessalonian believers believed in the Lord. We just read that in our passage. And they were following the Lord in many areas of their lives. They were doing great, and they, Paul was encouraging them to do even better, right? But for some of them, the area of moral purity was an area that they wanted complete freedom in. They wanted to call their own shots. They wanted to be the boss in this area, right? I'll be my own boss. And they probably thought that they just wanted freedom in this one little area, right? They just, just in a small way. I mean, I obey in all the other ways, right? I'm doing really great in all these other ways, but this is just a little thing. It's just kind of one little department that's, uh, that I'm going to do my own way, right? But Paul says here that to reject God's commands and prohibitions in the moral realm is actually to reject God himself. You can't have it both ways. You can't serve him over here and keep this in reserve and I'll do whatever I want over here. You can't have it both ways. So Paul reminds us that to reject God's standard concerning moral purity is to reject God himself. God has called us to be morally pure. A rejection of that teaching constitutes a rejection of him. But there's more we need to hear. He says, verse 8 again, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God also gives the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? He doesn't say why he mentions that. He just tacks it on there at the end. But it's pretty important. First of all, there's a degree of warning in it. There's a degree of warning in this. There seems to be an implied warning in Paul mentioning that God, whom we are rejecting by rejecting his standards of holiness, is also the giver of the Holy Spirit. I want to give you just two references real quick. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3a. The writer to the Hebrews says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's, it's a similar idea to what was going on in Samuel's day. What, you, you want a better king? You want a better offer than God himself being the king, the sovereign of your nation? You want to go find someone who's better? It's not possible. It's, it's absurd. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews says. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Are you looking for a better salvation? Are you looking for a better offer? He builds on that in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. He says... Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin that he mentions there in Hebrews chapter 3 is the lie that sin will tell us, that we can reserve this little area of our lives for ourselves. It tells us the lie that you know, we do great in so many other areas. I serve in all these other ways. I do great things in all different areas of my life, right? And this little vice isn't really all that important. It's the lie that says, surely God isn't really paying attention to that kind of little detail stuff, right? He's looking at the bigger picture, right? He's looking at world events. He's looking at larger stuff. And if we believe those lies and we give in to that sin, then we begin a process of hardening our hearts toward God. The more we buy those lies, the harder our heart gets towards God. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. So that's a, that's a little bit of the, of the discussion there about what the warning is in this mention 
of he's the giver of the Holy Spirit. There's a warning in the words that causes that should cause us to abandon impurity and to pursue holiness. But, but there's an amazing promise that goes with it, and this is where I want to spend my time. The promise. Now, the wording in the discussion here, where he says, uh, "Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives His Spirit or gives His Holy Spirit to you." That the last little words there, to you, in English looks pretty normal. But if, if you look at the original language, it's, it's an awkward way of saying it. He could have said it much more smoothly with different words. But he chose this awkward phrase, and it makes you kind of pause and say, well, I understand it, but why'd you say it that way? And the reason he said it that way is because he's referring back to Ezekiel chapter 36. So if you'd flip back to Ezekiel 36. Now, it might seem like a random place in the Bible for me to have you go, but it's not. It's hugely important. When you get there and you see the heading, you'll know why. So he uses this awkward language to force us back to, to think back, where, where have I heard that odd way of talking before? Well, it's in Ezekiel 36. There are a couple other places, but not many. This one really stands out, okay? Ezekiel 36. So the old covenant, let me give you a little bit of background here, okay? The old covenant given to Moses and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai said that God would be their God that God would make them his people and that he would deliver them from their enemies. Pretty good deal, right? And for their part, the Israelites were to keep God's commands and to walk in his ways. If they didn't uphold their end of the deal, then there were increasingly more severe consequences up to and including them getting booted out of the land, right? Which we know, if you know your Old Testament history, that's exactly what happened. Ezekiel, in fact, is writing after that had happened. So it's going to happen, all right? So that's the, that's the old covenant, But in Ezekiel 36, God tells the people that he will establish a new covenant with them. So let me read uh, Ezekiel 36, starting in 25, starting in verse 25. There's some other stuff mentioned there before, but I want to start in 25. Okay, this is God speaking. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. So the odd wording that you can't see in English because their goal is to make it smooth points you back to this. And someone who knew their Old Testament would have known this and thought, wow, God gave us his Holy Spirit. What's the deal with that, right? This is a new covenant. It's a promise that God himself will undertake, God himself will undertake to cleanse us, to give us a new heart, to put his spirit within us, to cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. He promises, he promises to undertake our sanctification, Sanctification means to be made holy. He promises to undertake our sanctification. That's huge. That's huge. Now, uh, we're talking about the promise that comes with the fact, uh, that explains why he mentioned that God is the giver of the Holy Spirit and therefore don't reject him because you're rejecting this huge promise, right? So the the promise that God will undertake our sanctification is a big discussion, and I want to have it. 
but I don't have time in this message to have it. So write down these passages, two of them. Write them down and look at them later. They're worth pondering, okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Same book. A little bit later. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Write those down and look them up. If you don't crack your Bible any other time in the week, crack, them for, crack it for this. This is huge, okay? I have to move on. What an amazing promise that God himself would undertake our sanctification. But how will he accomplish the work? This is where I want to close with us. Again, a big discussion. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus is praying and Jesus says to God, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is instrumental in our sanctification and us becoming holy in our practical lives. That was, that was uh, John 17, 17. Romans 10, 17. God uses his word to bring about faith in us. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2, very famous verses. God's word works on us from the inside out to transform us by the renewing of our minds. This is all the process of sanctification happening. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is doing this process in you. It's an amazing, amazing promise, amazing verse. I was flipping through Hebrews the other day, flipping through Hebrews chapter 11, and I came to verse 8. And Hebrews 11, 8, I think, is an excellent instruction for us right here. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, he obeyed. It doesn't just say, Abraham stuck it out, and it worked out okay. He was trusting God, that God knew what he was doing by calling him to this. That God was going to work in this situation and fulfill his promise in his life and in his children. God was going to do this. And by faith, he obeyed. I think that's very similar to what's happening there in, in Philippians chapter 2. God undertakes our sanctification. Now, does that mean that we can take a nap? for the rest of our Christian lives, and God is going to make us holy. I would say not, because we have commands in Scripture that are given to us as new covenant believers. New commands, commands that have been given to us that we are to obey. If we are trusting the Lord and walking in obedience in those areas, He works amazing things in us. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. He's very powerful. He does all kinds of things for us. And one of the things that he does is sanctify us from the inside out. Make us new. That doesn't mean you lay there like a slug until God moves you to do something. Right? We do have commands. But it's not just white-knuckling it, gutting it out. I'm going to do it. Perseverance. Right? No. That's not what it is. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Yeah, Abraham got up and went. 
He left his, he left his people. He left everything familiar to him. And he got up and went because he trusted God. And we obey his commands in scripture because we trust him. He knows what he's doing and he's working in us to give us the strength to be able to obey him, to give us the power. It is God who works in you both to will, to give you the desire, and to work for his good pleasure. It's powerful. That's a huge promise. One of God's purposes in giving us the Holy Spirit is to cause us to walk in obedience to him. One of his purposes in giving us the Holy Spirit is to cause us to walk in obedience to him. All right, close your eyes for a moment, please. <clears throat> I want this to be a personal time with, uh, with you and the Lord, your own thoughts and talking to him. This is the glorious news of the gospel. Holy God in heaven looks down on sinful, fallen humanity and he undertakes to save us from the destruction and the judgment of hell that we deserve because of our sin and our rebellion. And he sends his perfect son, Jesus Christ, his divine son, to become a man like us, to live in perfect obedience, and then to die in our place on the cross so that we could receive forgiveness. But he's not done yet. He rises from the dead he goes back to heaven to be with his father and then he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell his children and to work out holiness into their lives. That's the promise we're talking about. You can receive that forgiveness and that eternal life by putting your trust in Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for you. And that's something you can do right now. And I ask that you would do that right now. You don't have to be a slave to death anymore. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore, including sexual immorality. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ, and He will save you. Let's pray. Lord God, what an amazing truth, and we are so grateful that you would do all of this for us. Lord, we rejoice that we have such a God and we can call Him Father. We rejoice. I rejoice that I have forgiveness. And Lord, it is true. We need You every hour and I rejoice that You supply that need every hour. Thank You for Your work. Lord, we help us to live in light of this. Help us to trust You to walk in faith and be obedient to you. Lord, in areas of our lives, it is so hard to do that. But you say in your word that you yourself undertake our sanctification. And we praise you for that. Lord, help us to walk in the truth of this this week. Help us to look up these verses we wrote down. To ask questions. Lord, work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Walk in this. Walk in this.